This podcast is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform for entrepreneurs to stand out and succeed online. And I know this personally as I use Squarespace for my website and find it so easy to use with plenty of great templates to choose from to make it look super engaging and professional, even for a technophobe like me. And if you need any more encouragement, here are some of the amazing things Squarespace offer. You can start a completely personalised website with the new guided design system, Squarespace Blueprint AI. You can also sell your products and services with an online store. From hand-knitted decorations to digital content or services, Squarespace has the tools you need to start selling online. Squarespace supports entrepreneurship by helping you to easily manage your clients and invoices in one streamlined workflow. Head to squarespace.com forward slash fail 10. That's fail 1010 for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use offer code fail 10 to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Today's episode is sponsored by BetterHelp, a professional counselling service done securely online. Regular listeners of How to Fail will know that I'm a passionate advocate of therapy. Is there something interfering with your happiness or that's preventing you from achieving your goals? For me, when I first went into therapy, it's because I was in a job that made me unhappy. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist, and you can start communicating in under 48 hours. There's a broad range of expertise available, which might not be locally available in your area. This service is available for clients worldwide. You can log into your account anytime and send a message to your counsellor. You'll get a timely and thoughtful response. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions so you won't ever have to sit in one of those uncomfortable waiting rooms again. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches, so they make it easy and free to change counsellors if needed. It's also more affordable than traditional offline counselling, and even better, financial aid is available. BetterHelp wants you to start living a more fulfilled life today. Visit betterhelp.com forward slash HTF. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. And join the over 1 million people taking charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. There is a special offer for How to Fail listeners where you can get 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com forward slash HTF. Thank you so much to BetterHelp. Before we get on with today's episode, I just wanted to beg you all to buy my new book. (laughs) I mean, might as well be completely upfront and open about it. That's what I would love you to do. You can pre-order Philosophy now at the Waterstones website. In fact, you can pre-order a signed copy. It is out on the 1st of October. I would love you to read it. It is a distillation of everything that I've learned in the last two and a half years of talking ceaselessly about failure to lots of amazing people. It is packed full of inspirational quotes from past guests and loads of practical wisdom for how to get through tough patches in life. It is organised according to seven failure principles. If you've come to one of my live shows, you might have heard me go through them and it's just an expansion of that really. But you can read it in one sitting it's not that long. (laughs) Or you can dip into it as and when certain themes seem to be applicable to you. It's also beautifully illustrated, not by me, I hasten to add, but by the amazing illustrator Paul Blow. Anyway, if you would like to pre-order it, I would be incredibly grateful. So just head to www.waterstones.com. And on top of that, 
if, for instance, you wanted to buy the book and a ticket to see me live, you can now come and see me at the London Palladium. I am doing, excitingly, a socially distanced show where they have all the safety measures in place. You book in household bubbles. That's going to happen on the 2nd of October. It's my only launch event for the new book. And you can buy a ticket that includes a book in the ticket. If you can't come to London or you'd rather not, then you can also join me on the live stream. And it's going to be a really fun evening. I'm going to be doing a bit of a spiel at the beginning. Then I'm going to be interviewed by the fantastic Raven Smith, Vogue columnist and funniest man on Instagram, I think anyway. Hashtag TM. Then there will be a Q&A and there will be some very, very special guests on the night as well. So if that interests you, please go to www.fane, that's F-A-N-E dot co dot UK. And now on with the episode. Hello and welcome to How to Fail with Elizabeth Day, the podcast that celebrates the things that haven't gone right. This is a podcast about learning from our mistakes and understanding that why we fail ultimately makes us stronger. Because learning how to fail in life actually means learning how to succeed better. I'm your host, author and journalist Elizabeth Day, and every week I'll be asking a new interviewee what they've learned from failure. Mohsin Zedi was born and raised in Walthamstow, East London, the eldest son of devoutly Muslim parents who had emigrated from Pakistan. His childhood was not without challenges. He was bullied at his local comprehensive in an area beset by gang violence, and the family's house was petrol-bombed in a racist attack after 9-11. Despite this, Zedi became the first pupil from his school ever to go to Oxford University, where he studied law and was elected college president. After graduating, he worked at the Magic Circle law firm Linklaters before transferring to the bar. As one of the country's leading young barristers, he now specialises in white-collar crime and has twice been ranked in the Financial Times' outstanding list of future leaders. He is, then, a son any parent would be proud of. But for much of his life, Zeddy had a secret his sexuality. As a member of a devout Shia Muslim family, the fact that he was gay was deemed one of the worst things he could tell his parents. Zedi lived in personal torment for years before finding the courage to tell his family. It was not an easy road. At one point, his desperate parents summoned a witch doctor to rid him of evil spirits. But their journey to acceptance is recounted in Zeddy's deeply moving and profoundly important memoir, A Dutiful Boy, published earlier this year. In it, he writes beautifully about how his parents overcame their prejudice and says, The thing about superheroes is that they had to have a weakness. If they were invincible, there would be no point. I knew now that the same was true in real life. What made them so special was that they found a way to overcome their kryptonite, not that they didn't have it in the first place. Mossin, welcome to How to Fail. 
Thank you for having me. I hope that introduction wasn't too cringe. I know you don't like nice things being said about you. No, no, no. It's it's one of the more British sides of me. But no, that was fine. Thank you. Okay, good. I absolutely loved your memoir, A Dutiful Boy. And I thank you for the courage it must have taken to write it. And the reason I chose that quote that I ended on there was not only because it says so much, but it's very on brand for this podcast. The idea of a flaw actually leading to embracing greater strength. What's your kryptonite? Oh, (laughs) (laughs) do you know, I said before coming on this podcast that that you are so good at asking questions and there's no (laughs) point preparing. Um, (laughs) I guess it's my family, actually. That is my real weakness because there were so many moments as I was growing up, particularly in my 20s, where the logical thing to do would be to say, okay, you know, this isn't working. I need to move away from it for my own betterment and for my own kind of mental health. But I couldn't help but keep going back because I needed them and I need them. So I guess if if I was going to pick something kind of perversely, it would be them. Mm. You write with such tenderness about your parents, your uncles, your brothers. And I wonder how hard it was to revisit your life because it gets very, very dark at some points, particularly when you're at Oxford University and you're struggling with all sorts of identities. How difficult was it for you to write? There were moments where I guess I just, I looked at the page and I looked at what I'd written and I thought, oh my God, this really happened. So there were times when it was hard, but I think for the most part, it felt good to be able to to write it all down. I think one of the things I say at the end is that by writing it down, I feel like I can almost put it down and leave it behind. Although there were moments where it really did, you know, it used to bring me to tears. I'd be typing away and crying at the same time. But I think overall, it just feels like I can take it out of me now. I know you would have been asked this many times before, but what do your parents make of the memoir? They are really supportive. When I first spoke to them about writing it, I made it clear that I wouldn't do it without their blessing. And they agreed with caveats. So they said they want to be able to read it beforehand and, and you know, have a right of veto. And I agreed to all of that. When my mum actually read it, in fact, my mum and my brother I'd had the same experience of, I knew that they were reading it. My brother used to read it on his commute. And so I'd get these messages in the morning and in the evening being like, oh my God, I I remember that. And then when my mum read it, she would send me these messages saying, there's a typo on page 83. And I was like, (laughs) mum, I don't don't need to know what you think of the typos. But then she got to the end and actually didn't exercise her right of veto. So they are really supportive. And I guess the main thing for them and for me is that they hope that it helps other people. By any measure, you are an extremely successful person. How do you feel more broadly about failure? Like, how do you feel coming onto this podcast? <laughs> you know, I, I wish I felt like a successful person. I guess it doesn't to me feel like a destination. It feels like something that you're constantly grappling with. In some ways, coming on the podcast was bizarre because th- there are so many things I could have spoken about. I was like, nope, too private, nope, too private. I guess I don't really think about it as success. I just think about it as trying to be the best person I can be for myself and for the people that I love and doing the best I can not to take a wrong step. And then if I do take a wrong step, learning from it. 
There's a bit in the book where you're talking with a university friend about the film Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, which famously deals with unpleasant memories and the possibility of erasing them. Would you erase your unpleasant memories, given everything that you've been through and all the things that you've had to contend with, which we will go into in greater detail, but would you choose to erase them if you could? No, absolutely not. I think that they've made me the person that I am today. To be honest, without all these things that happened, without all these things that I've written about, I really couldn't picture what sort of person I'd be. I used to dream about a life where I was straight, and even that now seems impossible to imagine. So no, I wouldn't wish them away. I mean, that's for the most part. I think that there are still times, even now, talking about it with you and and thinking about this book coming out, there are still times where I think about what it would have been like to lead a completely different life. But no, I wouldn't erase the memories. I have a copy of your book in hardback, and I don't know whether the paperback cover is going to stay the same, but the the hardback cover is so heartbreaking because it's a photo of you as a little boy and there's just something about the expression on your face that I find just, yeah, heart-rending really. What's it like having a photo of you as as that young boy on the cover of a book? Is it quite surreal? Yeah, I mean, I actually don't have a copy of that hardback yet because the publication was delayed until August and I'm in Ireland at the moment so I've not got a copy of the book but I do know what the front cover looks like. The thing is, with that picture, although it is me, I don't ever remember a time where I looked in the mirror and remember that image. Mm -hmm. So I think it's actually more surreal for my parents because they do remember that little kid. Whereas for me, it's just a bit embarrassing. (laughs) (laughs) When they were trying to think about front covers, they said, can we look through your photos of you as a kid? And I was like, yeah, sure. And then they picked that one. And I thought, why did they pick that one? But everybody seems to have said similar things to what you've said. How old are you in the picture? You know, I don't don't actually know. I've asked my mum this and she thinks I'm about seven, but but we can't remember. I suppose it's that famous Jesuit saying, isn't it? Well, show me the child at seven and I'll show you the man. But this little boy has such a sense of, I suppose, hope about the future and expectation on him. And you can just tell that he's such a good child in so many ways, as the title says, a dutiful boy. Anyway, it's a beautiful picture. Oh, thank you. (laughs) It really is. But let's get on to your failures. And I want to get onto them quickly because they're so good. And I know that there's going to be lots to chat about. The first failure you've chosen is that you failed the entrance exam and the interview for private school at the age of 11. So tell us what happened there. Well, it was kind of sprung on me in a way, because I think my mum and my dad knew that getting into a good school would be I guess, transformative. And we lived in in an area where there were no decent schools. So they kind of said to me one day, you're going to be sitting these exams and you're also going to have an interview. But there was very little by way of preparation. And I think that's because they didn't really know how it worked. So I went into this really nice looking private school. I still remember the exam hall really distinctly. It wasn't actually an exam hall. I think it was their school library. And I still remember one of the questions. And the question was, you have 35 soldiers in a line and we've each got numbers. How many different unique combinations of them can you make if they're standing in a line? I don't even understand the question. So. Oh, sorry. It's, well, yeah, <laughs> no, no, I mean, no, as in that's like, how on earth are you meant to answer that? Yeah, well, it's equivalent. <laughs> let's say you've got A, B and C. You can do B, C, A, A, C, B. So that basically okay, it's just how, okay. how many different ways can you rearrange them so that they're lined up uniquely? And I remember I turned the exam sheet over and just began writing it out. 
because I had absolutely no way of knowing how to attack this question. I knew that I wasn't going to pass this test that I'd been asked to sit. So that was the exam. And then I had this interview in this really old like office with this man who was, I think, the head teacher of the school. And it really meant very little to me. And then I remember I was going to badminton on a Saturday one day. And as my mum dropped me off, she said, oh, by the way, you didn't get in. And so you're going to be going to the local school. And the reason I picked it was because it was, I guess, my first failure. And it's not because my parents didn't make me feel like a failure. I could see that they were disappointed, but they didn't convey the idea of failure. But I knew that something I'd done something that wasn't quite right or I'd messed up. And even though it was my first experience of failure, it was external and it didn't really form part of me until much later when I looked back at it and I thought, oh, wow, like that moment had the power to really change my life. But it didn't because I didn't pass the uh, tests. Mm. Up to that point, were you aware that you were good at school? Yeah, I mean, I never thought of myself as being, you know, remarkably clever or anything like that. But I I was always always in the top set and worked hard so that I could get good grades. But that was more because I was worried about my parents shouting at me than, than anything else. So, yeah, I mean, I guess I did have an idea that I was decent at school, but I guess it was relative in a way. The reason I ask is because a lot of people come on this podcast and say that they became accustomed to being good at exams and being told that they were good at school. And then when they had their first failure, they were ill-equipped to deal with it. But it doesn't sound to me like you thought that that was part of your identity. It wasn't that important to you to be good no. at school. It was important to your parents. Yeah. And, and I guess, to be completely honest with you, that remains the case today. I've never felt, although externally there are indications that I've done all right, I've never felt like somebody who is a success or who will succeed. And every new thing I approach, including this podcast, if I'm completely honest, I approach with a kind of (laughs) low-level dread that I'm going to mess up. It's a double-edged sword because it's the thing that scares me and makes me think that I'm going to fail but it's also the thing that helps me succeed because I over prepare so that I am ready for any stumble. By the way the beauty of this podcast is that you don't need to have low level dread because even if you failed that's very on brand so it's totally fine. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah yeah yeah. Why do you think I called it that? (laughs) (laughs) No I know I think it's genius but no but you know like In some ways, failure kind of haunts me because I'm always looking for it. I'm always looking for it in the things that I do or the decisions I make. And like inevitably, I'll I'll listen to this back and I will say to myself, oh, I shouldn't have said it like this. I should have said it like that. While all my loved ones and my friends are saying, oh, my God, you went on how to fail. (laughs) All I'll think about is the fact that I was inarticulate when explaining the question on the exam or something like that, you know? You're so lovely. I feel that. No, you, I, I, but you are. You're, I, and also just to say that we're recording this remotely. And I know that that adds a whole other layer of, of difficulty because we can't connect. It's kind of eye to eye. But that low level dread that you mentioned and the fear of getting things wrong. Do you think that comes from what we've been talking about? That you are gay, you knew that, and it felt like something to be ashamed of and therefore you were trying to overcompensate by being perfect in every other area yeah I mean I think that a lot of people feel some version of that a lot of kind of people from the LGBT community feel this sense of 
And I, and I, in fact, I, I think I write about it in A Dutiful Boy. I, I write about this idea of trying to do things the best that you can so that you're hiding the imperfections. But I also think it comes down to my kind of background in schooling. You know, I wasn't really raised in, in an environment that said, you are brilliant, you are entitled to succeed. And I think there's something in my nature that also always anticipates failure and thinks about failure. Because actually, in some ways, one of the reasons why I've ended up in the position that I'm in is through the process of anticipating failures rather than through yeah. the objective of achieving success. Well, that's a form of constructive pessimism and I'm here for it. I totally get that. <laughs> I'm definitely someone, when I was growing up, I was always called a worrier. Like I worried about everything. I worried about every eventuality. And my response was, well, if I worry about it, then I'm prepared for the worst. Mm. And then if better stuff happens, that's a pleasant surprise. Yeah, I mean, I'm exactly the same. I, I worry about even this book. I mean, I constantly worried about every single word that's going to be torn apart and how it's going to be received. But I'm not sure if you remember this, but there was this amazing song called Wear Sunscreen. It was originally oh, I love a speech. That song. Yes. Yeah, and there's a line in it and it says, worry, but know that worrying is effective as trying to solve an algebra equation by chewing bubblegum. <laughs> and that line always stays with me because I worry constantly. And so then I have to try to remind myself that there's no point. So what happened after you failed to get into that private school. Tell us about the school experience that you then did have. So I went to my local secondary school and it was a very challenging experience for me, even at the time. I think with hindsight, it was more challenging than I could have appreciated. But I really stood out because you can probably hear in my voice, I sound middle class and I've always sounded this way. It actually really annoys me when people say, did you change your accent when you went to Oxford? But I always sounded this way because my mum sounds this way and I, I got it from her. But I went to a school where people used slang and didn't conform to the school uniform. For the most part, I stuck out and I was bullied relentlessly, actually. And it was just a really lonely and isolating experience for the most part. I did have some friends and I did get a lot of support from teachers who could see that I wanted to do something with my life. And so I was really lucky in lots of ways. But overall, it was a really hard time and it didn't really get any easier until I left. Yeah, you were horribly bullied. Those were some of the most difficult passages in the book to read, actually, to the extent that when your younger brother started the same school you felt like you had to not acknowledge that you knew him in order yeah. to protect him yeah because he was a year younger than me I mean I write about one character in particular but he, the character is actually an amalgamation of a few people and I, I just didn't want him to be subjected to the same you know abuse physical and verbal that, that I was being subjected to and I so I thought the best way of doing that was to avoid him or to not tell anybody that we were related. I mean, people quickly figured it out. I mean, the great thing about him is that he's really charismatic, always has been, and great at sport, and didn't really like school very much. So so he, I think he found it a lot easier to fit in than I did. Does he have a different accent from yours? Yes, he does. And my secondary school didn't have a sixth form, and I ended up going to a grammar school for sixth form, and then he followed me the year afterwards. And everyone kind of remarked or observed that it seems as though we've been brought up by two different sets of parents. 
I find accents completely fascinating because we had a chat before we started recording and I told you that I grew up in Northern Ireland. Now, there is no way you can hear that in my voice. And for years, it really, really bothered me. And for whatever reason, I just didn't pick up the accent, even though I lived there from the ages of four to 22. Really? (laughs) Yeah. yeah. I can't believe it's that long. I just assumed it was like a couple of years. One of the things that you talk about in A Dutiful Boy is identity and there are so many aspects of your identity and I would love to read a quote that you gave to an interview with the Times with former podcast alumna Satnam Sangira. Yeah that was a wonderful episode by the way. (laughs) Well thank you that was all him he is amazing but you said for gays I was too Muslim for Muslims I was too gay for whites I was too brown and for my family I was too white. I think that puts it so well. And I wanted to ask you whether you found a sense of belonging now, whether you've made peace with your multiple identities. I think so. I mean, I think I have reached a point where as much as possible, I don't try and demarcate them. I think one of the things about the journey that I've written about is that I've spent so much of my life feeling like I had to keep everything apart from one another. Like I felt like I couldn't talk to my parents about my private life. I felt like I couldn't talk to people I was dating about my faith and my background. And when I was at university, I didn't really feel like I could talk to many people about the place I'd come from. So I think for me, the most important thing about today is just letting those things sit together as one rather than feeling like there's no place for them to be next to each other. Mm. Take me back to your last day at that school that you mentioned before you went to the grammar school, because something happened during that last day, which encapsulated so much of the situation you found yourself in. The last day of secondary school was supposed to be, I think, a Thursday. And then on, on the Tuesday, we were told to go into the main hall in school. And we were given a speech from our head of year, which sounded a lot like a goodbye. And then he said something like, this might sound like a goodbye. That's because it is. And what they had done is they'd moved the leaving date forward by two days because they were worried about gang violence. And then they'd chosen the sports hall because there was an exit straight onto a car park that was essentially outside the school. So we weren't allowed to go back into the school. We were led out via this kind of fire exit. And then waiting outside in the car park were police who were stop and searching us randomly for weapons. I actually had to, because I'm a governor of my old school now, and I remember having to double check that actually happened because it felt, because I wasn't sure whether maybe I just made it up or something. Lots of people in my year were were stopped and searched, including one of my close friends. So that was the kind of lasting memory of secondary school for a long time. When you were growing up, so many assumptions were made about you, negative assumptions, whether it be for your race or an intimation about your sexuality. But it strikes me that any anger you felt at that you've been able to redirect into positive drive (laughs) is that right first of all and secondly did it come naturally or have you had to really work quite hard at that when so many of the things that are getting in your way are societal I think it's very difficult to be angry with them in the moment if that makes sense so Mm -hmm. if someone's doing something to annoy you or, or someone's standing in your way you can direct your anger at them but when it's something that's invisible and societal like for example, racism, it can be much more difficult to react instantly with anger. I don't know that it was anger in the obvious sense. I feel more angry now, looking back, and not necessarily for myself, but for the people that come after me. I think for me at the time, 
I saw something was in my way, I write about it. I say I, I had hurdles in front of me and my job was to step over them. Um, and so that's what I did. So I don't know that it was anger that manifests itself as a drive for success. I think I just thought, well, you know, you can't go around it. You have to go through it. That's um, fascinating. Yeah. Whereas now I'm guessing that you feel your job is to dismantle those hurdles. Oh, completely. And I'm much more angry looking at things now than I was then. So, you know, the way that I was treated in shops, I was embarrassed by it, not angry. Whereas now when I see it happening and I have seen it happening, I'm angry by it. So I went into a shop on Regent Street in January and I walked in behind these two black guys and the security guard said on his radio to IC2 males, keep a lookout. And IC2 is a police abbreviation for black male. And I was really, really angry. And I asked to speak to the manager and the manager came along and it was a black woman. And I said, look, your security guard has literally just racially profiled those two guys over there. And I pointed at them and I said, do they look like they're going to steal anything to you? And she said, no, they don't. And I said, so why do you think he did that other than because of their race? And she said, I think it was because of their race. And so we had this exchange and it was really weird because I was really angry but she could clearly understand what was happening, not least because she was a black woman. And I remember leaving the shop and thinking to myself, I had those same experiences of security guards following me. And all I felt was embarrassment and the need to demonstrate that I was a good citizen. Whereas as soon as I see it happening to other people now, I feel more rage. And you talk in the book about how when you first became a barrister, people would mistake you for the defendant. Yeah, <laughs> That still happens. I mean, it doesn't happen that often. It only really happens in the magistrate's court because you don't wear a wig and a gown. Although I've also had experiences where I had a meeting with a really high profile QC from a different chambers. And I went to the front of his chambers and I buzzed the doorbell. And I don't know if whoever was meant to be answering the door wasn't there. So I was standing outside and there was a pile of boxes next to me and a different barrister, also a QC, came out of the building, looked at the boxes, looked at me and said, oh, those need to go to the high court. Wow. Because he, he assumed that a young brown man in a suit was a clerk from a different chambers. So he assumed I was a clerk. And I just said, oh, I'm actually not, I'm, I'm here for a different meeting. So yeah, it, it, it does still happen. Before we get on to your next failure, which is a big one, <laughs> because it's really the point of your book. But I wanted to ask you about the language around sexuality because there's a whole vocabulary used around being gay that includes the term, quote unquote, coming out. Yeah. And I've spoken on the podcast before about how that can be quite an unsettling and uncomfortable term because it assumes, A, that there's something to be ashamed of and B, that it's something that you, you sort of step into the knowledge of, whereas actually you're kind of born with your identity. How do you feel about the term coming out? I think that it is a term that I hope we no longer use soon. I don't think we're there yet. Because what it suggests, or what it conveys, is the idea that when you're born, you're born in this box that you have to tell people you don't belong in. And what would be wonderful is that when you're born, there is no box. So there's no presumption, there's no default. So there is no coming out process because there's no sense of you are, unless you say otherwise, you are X. So I guess the the term for me is unfortunately still necessary, but I hope that it is redundant sooner rather than later. Your second failure is 
and I'm just quoting you directly, I failed to become the man my parents hoped I would be. Mm. Oh, Mossin, that just, again, find that quite heartbreaking. But to give it context for anyone who hasn't read your book, what is the take on homosexuality for a Shia Muslim, a devout Shia Muslim who was raised reading the Quran in Arabic as you were? Mm. Well, interestingly, I try to avoid going into theology in the book because I'm, I'm not an expert. And, and to a certain extent, it's difficult sometimes to unwrap faith from culture. But I was raised to believe that homosexuality was a sin for which I would go to hell. And so that was the kind of context of my upbringing. And, you know, the funny thing is, not necessarily because my parents said anything, because I don't think they even thought, they didn't even tell us about girls, let alone boys. <laughs> so uh, it wasn't necessarily because they, they said anything. I just knew because uh, it permeated. It was like one of the things that we knew we didn't do. And you talk in the book about how you used to pray that God would take away your place Oxford in return for making you straight. Yeah, yeah, I prayed a lot for that. One of the kind of working titles for the book at one point was 11,000 prayers because I calculated mm. that if I prayed five times a day between the age of, I think, 13 and 19 or whatever it was, that it comes to about 11,000 <laughs> prayers. And each time I, I would pray for the same thing because for me, Oxford felt like a miracle. Like it really didn't, I never thought I would get in. I wasn't even planning on applying. It was my parents that pushed me to do it. And then when it came true... The only explanation in my mind was that I was being given something that I could essentially offer as a sacrifice. And so I spent a lot of time praying and, and asking for Oxford to be taken away in exchange for me being straight. And so I used to think, OK, well, if I don't get my grades and I fail, then maybe that will mean that I'll be straight. And when you say you failed to become the man your parents hoped you would be, what man were they hoping for? Well, I guess in some ways, I wouldn't want to misquote them because I, I I can only speak to what I think they wanted, which was, I mean, so I, yeah, it's complicated. They they definitely are quite happy with the lawyer bit. <laughs> um, Asian parents, they. Are you struggling because it's so, I just want to make it very clear in the book, it's so clear how much you love your parents. Yeah. And is it difficult to talk about because you don't want it to sound like you don't love them as much as you do? Yeah, I think I'm also very protective of them because I understand that publishing a memoir is taking something that's deeply personal and private and making it available for public consumption. And so I also... Whenever I speak about them, I, I really try and think carefully about what I do and don't say because I don't want to do them a disservice. But in terms of what they wanted, I don't think it's doing them a disservice to say that they hoped that I would get married to a woman, have kids, remain religious and remain close to them, both geographically and otherwise. You know, in my head, what I'm thinking about is, would they have preferred a version of me that wasn't these things that I am today, that was perhaps not as successful, maybe not a lawyer, but was straight. And I, I hope that the answer is no. I'd have to check with them, I guess. There's a place in the book where 
you're talking to your therapist, Maureen, and I don't think it's an overstatement. I mean, I think you say this, that she really saved your life. Mm. And she was someone that you encountered while at university. And she asks you the question, when you're struggling with this and you, you haven't told your parents yet, would they prefer a gay son or a dead son? And you can't answer straight away. Yeah, I mean, now I know the answer. I know the answer is that, <laughs> is that they would hate the idea of their son not being with them anymore. I know that now, but at the time, no, I couldn't answer that question because it really felt like I might ruin everything for them by coming out. I might ruin their sense of themselves, ruin their relationship with their faith, ruin their hopes and dreams for the future. Yeah, so I really couldn't answer that question. And I guess the sad thing is that there are so many young people today still questioning that and still wondering you know, would I be better off dead than the way I was born? And for me, that's that's the thing that is really hard to think about, to think that we still live in a society that forces young people to ask that question of themselves. Well, especially when there isn't language to express something. So you talk about how you told your parents separately, you told your mother first and then told your father, but when it came to the point to tell your father, you realised that the language you normally communicate in with him, Urdu, doesn't have a word that isn't in some way highly critical or offensive about being gay. And yet to speak in English would be to formalise it. And so you choose to write him a letter. And I just thought that was so profound that if there isn't even a word, how can we expect young people to feel safe expressing themselves yeah I mean again I, I'm not an expert in Urdu and so I do hope that I'm wrong about that but at least in my vocabulary there wasn't a neutral word every word came with a sense of prejudice and it might be that the words started off neutral and then over time built up behind them a kind of tailwind of prejudice but yeah that was a complicated thing to navigate because as you've mentioned and as I write about speaking in English about something that, that was so personal felt like it was taking me further away from my dad at a time when what I wanted to demonstrate was that nothing about me had changed that I was still the same son and I do think language at least when you're second generation or I don't know I never understand the first second generation thing but I was the first generation born in this country and my parents were born in Pakistan I think that that does create a complication when you're trying to talk about the most intimate things, but your your first language is different to your parents. Tell us a bit about your parents' reactions. I know that that's a huge question because the reactions really evolved, but tell us about the immediate reactions when you told each of them. So I told them separately. I told my mum first and then my dad a couple of years later. And how old were you? Sorry, Mosin, it was after your graduation, wasn't it? Yeah, so, well, my mum, I told her when I was 21, so I was about to go into my final year of university. And my dad, I told him when I was about 23 or 24, and I was doing legal exams before joining Linklaters. And the catalyst for telling each of them was different, but that's a whole other story, so I'll just focus on their reactions. But my mum, she kind of caved into herself. She didn't go to work for two days, so I told her, I think, on a Sunday... And on the Monday and Tuesday, she couldn't find the energy to go to work. And then on the Wednesday in the morning, she got up and went to work and then came home about an hour later because 
she got to work and was just crying. And so she ended up having to take that week off. And then she talked about taking me on a religious pilgrimage. And she talked about saving me and fighting this. And then that version of fighting my sexuality, in some way, it lingered for about 10 years. And my dad, when I told him, he burst into tears, then told me that he loved me and that I was his son. My brother and I were so surprised, we went for a milkshake afterwards. But then a week later, he brought a witch doctor to the house to try and cure me with some sort of ointment. I don't know, I don't actually know what it was because I refused to take it, but I kind of wish I kept it now so I could get it tested. Yeah, so they did have really difficult initial reactions. In some ways, I, I always knew that that would be the case. I think what I hadn't prepared myself for was just how long it would take to get them to a point where they could see me for me again and see me as their son. And I guess I wasn't sure they ever would, but there was something in me that always hoped that they could just accept me because to me it was like, well, I didn't choose to be this way and I am still the same person. And so the idea that they would push me away, it just it felt so illogical to me, but I had to put the ball in their court. It strikes me that there was such a lack of community support because you do talk about and it's a very funny episode in in the book where you go with your mother to a charity event for parents of LGBT South Asians yeah and (laughs) you say this brilliant thing about how South Asian mothers can be competitive about absolutely anything so tell Mm. us about that that event and why it wasn't quite right for your mother it was great you had to bring your own dish to the event so before it got started everyone's kind of hanging around in the kitchen and comparing notes on the pakoras and the samosas and who's made the tastiest one and and then talking about the fact that one of them said like oh my son actually made it or my daughter made it that's the point at which i just think i just remember thinking wow like they really do i mean even this situation where we're talking about this massive stigma they're talking about whose pakoras are tastiest and my mum kind of whispered to me should I tell them about Oxford? But, but she didn't She didn't say anything. But then when we got into the room, it became clear that we were the only Muslim family there. And I think that was really hard for her because it compounded the sense of isolation, the sense that we were going through this alone and there was nobody else in the world who was having to deal with it. And you now have set up a group, haven't you, for LGBT Muslims? So there's something called the Inclusive Mosque Initiative. And they are the ones who have done all the legwork. So I can't really take any credit for that. But I approached them with it and they very kindly agreed to help organise it. And the idea is it's a support group for families to come to discuss their experiences about being related to somebody who is LGBT. So it has been a long journey of acceptance, but I'm delighted for listeners that you have met someone... (laughs) who is a very handsome and tall Irishman and who you've introduced your parents and you're engaged to be married. Yeah, he's awesome. They actually, they love him way more than they love me now. Um, They (laughs) they genuinely prefer him, which I think is the dream really. Yeah, we were supposed to get married in April, but because of lockdown, we have had to postpone. But yeah, it was going to be a big Irish wedding. When you say, I failed to become the man my parents hoped I would be, does it genuinely feel like a failure to you? Yeah, it does. That doesn't mean to say that I'm not proud of the person that I am trying to become. You know, for a long time, I wished that there was a button that I could press to make me straight. And I I don't feel that way anymore. But I do regret that there's been so much 
heartache and difficulty for my family. I really wish that they didn't have to go through it. I really wish they hadn't had to go through it. And I guess that's part of the reason for the book is to hope that by adding this story to the big pile of stories that are now out there about LGBT Muslims, that we can help make sure that that young people and families in the future don't go through as much of an ordeal as we did. And so I think it does feel like a failure. That doesn't mean I'm solely responsible for that failure. But I think I'll always feel to a certain extent regret that I couldn't be the person they wanted me to be. How much has Matthew, your fiancé, been a source of self-acceptance for you? I had become very confident in the person I was by the time I hit 30, which was about the age that I met him, 31, I think. What he really helped with was bridging the gap between my family and my sexuality, because until him, they were completely separated inside of me and externally. And by meeting him, I have been able to reconcile parts of myself that I couldn't have imagined would ever sit harmoniously together. You know, we spoke earlier about the different parts of yourself having to work hard to find space for each other. And I think that what he has done is enabled two of the biggest parts of me to love each other. Oh God, I stop making me well up. It's just really <laughs> unfair. Um, um, tell me about the tea because this is one of my favourite things as well about your family. Yes, about the first time Matthew came to visit and the tea. <laughs> yeah, everybody loves the tea. So basically, my mum is quite fair-skinned and my dad is quite dark-skinned and, and my, me and my two brothers are somewhere in the middle. But we're, So we're all different shades. So whenever visitors come for tea, one of the easiest ways of finding out how much milk they want when we're all in the room is by pointing at one of us and saying, I'd like my tea that shade, please. So I'm kind of in the middle Mum's at one end of the spectrum, dad's at the other. We sat down. This is the first time they're in his, they're in his presence. They're, he's in their living room. And my mum kind of, you can tell that my mum and dad are finding it so difficult to even look at him. And it's weird, like, you know, obviously you, you know your parents better than anybody. And even though they're smiling, I know that those aren't their real smiles, that they're forced. And my mum or my dad said, oh, do you want some tea? And, and Matthew said, yes, I do. And then my mum, I think it was instinctive, said, how much milk do you want? Do you like it? And I, and I kind of interrupted her and said, mum, mum, mum. And then Matthew put his hand on my arm and said, just let her do it. And then she said, how much milk do you want? Do you prefer it to be this dark and point towards my dad or this light? And kind of pointed at herself. And, and he, without missing a beat, kind of lifted his hand, pointed to himself and said, just not this white, please. And... <laughs> They just burst into laughter and it really pierced the tension. And I think they really surprised themselves. He surprised me as well, but they, they just loved it. And it really set the tone for the rest of that evening of finding a way of being present with each other. So wonderful. And I have to say just again, how beautifully you describe your parents in the book. I love your mum. I particularly like the fact that she's tall as am mm. I. So that was something I could relate yeah. to. <laughs> yeah, it's funny, actually. I think I really empathise with tall women because <laughs> because growing up with a tall mum, you see the struggle, you know, like yes. heels, no heels, how, how <laughs> tall should they be? I know what long, tall Sally is, whereas a lot of people don't. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, it was a lot easier as a kid, though, because it meant finding her was quite easy in the supermarket and stuff. 
It's so funny, actually. I had a, a couple of messages last week from people who listen to the podcast who were sort of personally affronted when they discovered that I was tall because apparently I give a short, like short vibe. <laughs> and I, I was then offended. Not that there's anything wrong with, you know, uh, whatever height you are is completely acceptable. But I was like, really? <laughs> it's what? so much part of my identity. <laughs> I I can't say that I imagined you as short, actually. Thank you. Um, okay. <laughs> you're, you're welcome. <laughs> How tall are you? I'm five foot eleven. Oh, How tall right, are you? Okay. I'm six foot. X. Oh, gosh. You're such a handsome couple. You really have uh, seen the photos <laughs> on Instagram. Well, I keep getting... Well, not that often, but I get... I got after the Times article, I got a bunch of messages from random people, but most of them were asking about Matthew. <laughs> <laughs> They were like, you're okay, but your husband's hot. <laughs> <laughs> that's not fair at all. You are you are extremely handsome yourself. Anyway, I, know that's uh, I digress. Your final failure, and this also, I mean, I know I'm just wanging on about your book, but I just can't get enough of it. But this is refers to one of my favourite episodes in A Dutiful Boy, and it's your failure to understand technology. So tell us what you're referring to there. Oh my God. So this is the single most embarrassing moment of my life. I mean, it's properly embarrassing as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like (laughs) hands down. Like I've been in a few situations subsequently where people have said, you know, oh, I had this really embarrassing time when, and I've gone, I see you and I raise you like 300 (laughs) bars. So I spent a year as a judicial assistant to a judge at the Supreme Court. And so in layman's terms, basically, I was a young lawyer helping two Supreme Court judges. The Supreme Court sits at the top of the legal hierarchy and there are 12 judges who are the top judges in the land. So I was helping two of them. And one of them is a judge called Lord Wilson, who is a wonderful human being. And at the very start of my time with him, he he didn't use email. So his secretary would print his emails and he would handwrite the replies. And I remember saying to him, look, you've got to join the 21st century. It's ridiculous that you you don't use emails. And he, and he said he found the court's computers a bit complicated. And so I suggested an iPad and I'd recently got one myself. And he said, oh, I don't really know. And I said, look, I've, I've just bought mine. There's nothing on it. Why don't you just borrow mine for a few days just to, to get yourself going and familiar with what an iPad is? And then if you like the look of it, you can think about buying yourself one. So I lent it to him on a Friday and then... On the Monday morning, I come back in and he says, oh, thank you. Here's your iPad. I bought myself one. And I was really shocked because on the Friday, he'd still been printing emails out and handwriting replies. And then three days later, he's bought his own iPad. But anyway, I thought that was brilliant. So, you know, taught him to use it and stuff. And I hadn't, hadn't come out to him because there didn't seem a reason to. And that's just by way of background. But then he very early on said that he was going to be doing a speech in Belfast, in fact, to a group of lawyers. And he his background was as a family law judge. And so he decided to do a speech on gay marriage. And this was 2013. And so it wasn't legal in Northern Ireland then, but it had just become legal in the rest of the UK. And his speech made headlines because he had very bravely, in my view, gone to a part of the country where same-sex marriage was not permissible and said... Marriage is a very elastic concept and it's man-made and I think that you should think about having it here too. So I'd helped him work on this speech and he actually thanks me in it. And then subsequently the court heard the case of Bullen Hall, which was, I'm not sure if you remember, but it was... I remember this so well, yeah. Yeah, so it was a Christian couple who owned a bed and breakfast and they told a civilly partnered gay couple that they couldn't have a double room. And so while I was there, this case came to the Supreme Court 
after these things had happened, I, I remember talking to Lord Wilson and we were talking about the speech and he thanked me for, for working on it. And I said to him, actually, I think I should be thanking you because it was a, it was a professional honour, but also for me personally, it was a privilege to write because I'm gay. And for me, that was quite a nerve-wracking thing to do because he's my boss. He's one of the best top lawyers in the country. And usually we talk about professional stuff and I was here talking about personal things. And his response was, oh, uh, actually, I already know. And I was quite taken aback because, I mean, to be honest, it doesn't bother me whether somebody is camp or not, but I didn't think that I had done anything to give him the sense that I was gay. And he quickly said, oh, not because I could tell or anything like that, but do you remember that you lent me your iPad? And I kind of paused and thought, yeah. And he said, well, um, I uh, tried not to look, but you kept receiving these very colourful text messages from a young man called Alejandro. And what I hadn't appreciated was that my iPad synced with my iPhone and that my text messages were being sent to both devices over the weekend. <laughs> and so I was in a situation where this preeminent lawyer who I was trying to impress professionally had seen messages that I wouldn't show to anybody else, <laughs> let alone a Supreme Court judge. And it was genuinely the most embarrassing moment of my life. I've never really been speechless, but I was truly speechless. And I had to ask if I could be excused because I didn't know what to do with myself. <laughs> and I was so embarrassed that I didn't even go back to my open plan office with the other assistants. I went straight to the loo, closed the door and sat there for 10 minutes and just said, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. And I couldn't even call anybody because I couldn't fathom how I would go about explaining what had just happened. And then I was looking at the messages back and going, oh my God. And but yeah, also, and, the fact that it, he was called Alejandro makes yeah. it just even better. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was just awful. You know, I went back in after a while and he told me to sit down and we just laughed about it together. He was so good about it and so kind in his response. And it's characteristically him is to be kind. But he was so kind and thoughtful about the way he navigated talking to me about it. And that conversation from that failure led to a real lasting friendship. And so it was really important that that mess up happened. But I think the other thing about it was that I remember going home that night and thinking, wow, I have inadvertently come out to somebody and it's hilarious. And up until that moment in my life, I hadn't had a lighthearted coming out. They'd always been really serious and really loaded with emotion and feeling and expectation and worry. And it should have been the same in this context, but because of the person that he was and because of the friendship that we had just forged, it became this really wonderful thing. I remember it so fondly because I think that it indicated that something in me had shifted with my sexuality. That's such a beautiful story, <laughs> hilarious, and with this kind of beautiful ending. And Lord Wilson sounds wonderful. Mm. And actually you talk about how kindness is very prevalent in the bar and that you've been struck by how welcome you've been made to feel but I wonder you must also question the diversity or lack of of our judiciary do you think there's some way to go on that oh co completely I mean when I was at Supreme Court in 2013 they had one woman I think they've now got three out of 12 I mean it's not a numbers game but they still don't have any ethnic minorities 
And the thing is, the reason that judicial diversity, to my mind, is important is not for the sake of saying, oh, I mean, it is partly to say, okay, there is somebody that looks like me, I can do this. But it's also because judges are making the most important decisions that directly impact on people's lives. And the idea that they can do that without having any appreciation of what it means to be poor, to be faced with a circumstance where there are no good choices, or to have circumstance force your hand when it comes to a mistake that you've made, or to be you know, stopped by the police even. It's ridiculous to argue that people making those decisions shouldn't understand life in its fully formed complexity. I think, I mean, we talked about kindness, but kindness is also related to empathy. And I think that that when you have lived a different experience to most people, that does help you learn empathy. And that means that, that when you are forced to make decisions that affect people, you can do so from a vantage point that is more than just logic and reason. Because I think when you are making decisions about people's lives, there is more to think about than just logic and reason. So Mosin, I have my issues with the whole notion of a five-year plan, because quite often when I've had a five-year plan for myself in the past, I've got to that five-year point and I've been a really different person from the one I imagined. But I can't wait to see what you do next. And are you someone who has a five-year plan? I mean, what do you see next for yourself personally and professionally? Oh my God, I wish I knew the answer to that. I think the thing is, I've, I've never known. I've always kind of stumbled from one thing to another. And I'm really envious of people that have those five-year plans. I definitely don't know what the future holds. So A Dutiful Boy has been optioned by a production company and I am working with them to potentially do some TV writing. And so I've got some ideas for that. So I'm thinking about doing some TV writing. I've got some ideas for novels because I think I'd like to do more writing. I think storytelling is such a powerful way of conveying a message. I always thought in some ways that the law was the most powerful way of conveying a message and changing things. But I actually think that it's stories. As a criminal barrister, I do tell stories. The only thing I can say about the next five years is that I hope to be a storyteller in some shape or form. I would also quite like to live in California. I know that's really mad and nothing to do with anything that we're talking about, but I just... No, you're talking to the converted here. I mean, I'm a huge fan of LA and spend a lot of time there. Oh, do you? Oh, yes. well, if you ever need an assistant to help you with podcasts in LA, then sign Stop. me up because... I'll uh... have to be your assistant. <laughs> <laughs> I would just love to live somewhere sunny and happening for a while. And I think the idea of moving to California sounds like a dream. I mean, I don't know what that would look like and... I'm qualified as a lawyer in New York, but I don't know that I'd want to move over there as a lawyer. So, I mean, basically, I've got no, no idea what the future holds. And I've just thrown in a place that I would like to live as an answer. You have to put it out there, send it out into the universe. And how old are you now? How young are you now? You disgustingly I'm young person. <laughs> I'm, I'm 35. Okay. Yeah, I'm 35. Well, not to sound like your grandma, but I really do see such great things in your future. And it makes total sense to me that you're going to become a huge TV writer and therefore end up in LA and just do some lawyering on the side. Oh, thank you. Well, let's hope so. <laughs> I'm so glad that you said you are going to continue to tell stories because you have told such an extraordinarily powerful one in a beautiful boy. And you have shared such beautiful stories with us here today. And I just cannot thank you enough for coming on How to Fail. No, thank you so much for having me. Honestly, I've been listening to your podcast for a long time. And like, there's been a lot that's been surreal about publishing a book. But having listened to so many amazing people and your Im really impressive questions, I literally jumped, jumped for joy when I found out that you'd want me to come on. So thank oh. you so much. 
Wait, that means so much to me. And you're making me well up again. It's just it's <laughs> something about your voice. I can't. Thank you. That means a lot to me. It really, really does. You're a wonder. If you enjoyed this episode of How to Fail with Elizabeth Day, I would so appreciate it if you could rate, review and subscribe. Apparently, it helps other people know that we exist.